But Jesus says in his word that being harsh or hypercritical can dangerously expose that we actually don't know him at all. And this is the part in Matthew's gospel where he's been, he's been attacking the heart, it seems like, to where it almost feels very personal again and again on every scripture, every passage here. And what he's going to do, he's going to start opening up this understanding of we need to begin to wonder, do we actually know him for who he is? Do we recognize him for what he has done? And do we worship him because we actually see him for who he is and what he has done? The question for us, though, in this passage is, why are people so judgmental? Or why are you judgmental? Right? That's what last week was. It was just on two words, don't judge. I kept saying it was two words, and there was, of course, one person who came up and said, it's technically with a contraction, like three words, and I was like, okay, okay, I get it, I don't care. God's Word gives us tremendous insight into how we can understand or observe life around us, especially when it comes to the the understanding of what judgmentalism is. God's Word gives us tremendous insight this morning in answering the question, why are you or why am I so judgmental? Last week, I preached on just those two words, don't judge, and today, instead of looking at the meaning of don't judge at length again, I want to preach to you from verses 1 through 6, where Jesus gives his followers and us reasons for not judging. So I'm assuming here, and what I think the scripture does, is it assumes that you do judge people. And I know that you judge people because I judge people, and I might have felt you judging me because I felt me judging you. And, and we all do judge people unhelpfully or unbiblically. We are a judgmental people. We're quick to place others in a category beyond repair, right? Yet Jesus is speaking very practically and personally here. I actually probably received more comments last week after the sermon, not on how good or bad it was or what it meant to you, but rather I just received a lot of comments after the sermon on how personal that sermon felt, as if I was talking just to you. And I just want to let you in on something. Imagine being me now for 14 days looking at a passage about judgmentalism and even driving up to the church this morning, thinking about someone and being like, wait a second, how prone we are to fleshly sin. Like the word was speaking to each of us, and it is, and it's making no mistake. And today, the knife will go a little bit deeper, I think. But it's worth the pain because Jesus uses his own words to not only give us a glimpse of the high life, or the good life, or the virtuous life, which is what the Sermon on the Mount is, but he is using his words to make his people more holy. He says that the people who are listening to his word, the audience of the Sermon on the Mount, are not holy, but he is pointing them in the direction of true holiness. Now, I think it's necessary to remember that Jesus' sermon, so this is known as the Sermon on the Mount, if you're unused to the scripture, three chapters that are kind of isolated where Jesus is first big recorded sermon is taking place here, it's good for us to remember the people, the audience of Jesus's words are intended to decipher those who are in his kingdom and those who are not. So the Sermon on the Mount is for Christians today. The Sermon on the Mount, it's instruction, it's rebuke, it's encouragement. They are not meant for unbelievers. They're meant for the church. They're meant for Christians. The sermon is for the children of God who are born again by the Spirit. And with this being the case, this is the reason why I bring it up. Two things we can see just in this point. One, that Christians judge. He's talking to Christians here and he's saying, don't judge. 
And so we can recognize that Christians do judge, and we shouldn't. Christians have a habit of harsh or unjust criticism and condemnation. But secondly, we see that Christians who judge are also subject to judgment from God, from their judgment of others. So I want you to see the big picture through my sermon here in just a couple of points with a repeated question, why do you judge? I want to answer, why do you judge from this text? And the first reason why you and I might be judgmental people or the reasons why we judge, firstly, is we misunderstand judgment altogether. We judge people because we misunderstand judgment altogether. Look in your scriptures in verses 1 through 2 of chapter 7. Judge not that you do not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use it, it will be measured to you. We must approach the reality of our judgment through the lens of Scripture. And what's beautiful about Scripture is how uh, all of the Scriptures link and hold themselves together. We, we might modernly call those cross-references, where you might have little tiny words at the end of verses or sentences in your Scripture, and they might go to different passages at the bottom of your Bible, if you have like a study Bible or a reference Bible. And it points to this particular passage leaning on or leaning towards another portion of Scripture. And in all of Scripture, we actually recognize that the idea or the doctrine of judgment is talked about all over the place. In the entirety of Scripture, we're taught about judgment, but we're taught, taught about judgment in three categories. So just on your first point, I want you to understand what judgment means by, by seeing the three different ways that judgment is spoken of from Scripture. The failure to distinguish between these three categories of Scripture, the failure to distinguish between these can cause confusion. And that's where I think the, the church is often left when we're confused on what it means to judge or not judge. And, or even worse, rather than confusing these ideas of judgment or these different categories of a biblical theological understanding of judgment, it's the modern evangelical frame of mind today to completely ignore God's judgment. Because we don't understand it or it seems confusing or it might even seem harsh, we just ignore it altogether. Every time we read the Bible about having the fear of God, we, we necessarily have to explain it away, don't we? We say, well, well, the fear of God means this. It doesn't mean like we should run around scared because there's such a misunderstanding of what the fear of God is because it isn't regularly observed or taught. Because there's this weird lightness in superficiality in the church or in Bible studies today, far removed from biblical characteristics or apostolic commands. We always want to be happy people where there are blue skies in the morning and even at night. And we lack a deep reverence of who God is. And part of the reverence of who God is is understanding judgment altogether. So three ways that we can distinguish or understand judgment. This is all within the first point. The first one is there is a final sense of judgment. There's a final judgment. God, where God will administer judgment that is final and eternal. And that's the judgment that determines man's status, standing before God. And it's this eternal outlook uh, is what truly separates between a Christian and a non-Christian. This eternal perspective of how God will judge you is this final sense of judgment. It's talked about elsewhere in the scriptures as dividing the sheep from the goats, those who belong to God and those who don't belong to God. Both will be judged, but one's judgment will be seen through Christ in glory, and another judgment will be seen through one's own sin in hell. So we're not to judge with understanding of this final judgment. We're not to judge others because God will judge others. And in no way has he ever given us permission or a category of assignment to judge other people in this final sense. So the first judgment category is a final sense 
or a final judgment. The second one is a, is a disciplined sense of judgment. Judgment that comes through uh, the realm of disciplining ourselves or being disciplined by God. The second judgment is brought on because we're God's children. So we don't often think that we're continually judged by God because he loves us. But let me remind you to what all of us have hopefully experienced by your parent when they were about to spank you or swat you or in modern day discipline you by saying this hurts me more than it hurts you. And you go, I don't know if that's a thing. And they do this, they say they're doing this because I love you, right? The older we get up, the more we recognize that that's absolutely true because God does the same thing. They're doing this in light of God's love of us. We earn God's regular disciplining judgment because we're his children. I want you to use your Bibles and turn over to the book of Corinthians, the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So towards the back of that book, if you're unused to the Bible, there are Bibles in the chairs in front of you. Uh, You can grab one of those, and the one Corinthians will be at the top of the page if you keep skimming over to the right, maybe maybe eight-ninths of the way back. I have no idea why I use the fraction nine and use eights, but (laughs) here we are. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 26 through 29. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 26 through 29. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who drinks or eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. Now, look. Very quickly to verses 30 through 32. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. What a significant statement that this follows up, something that you and I might just regularly rehearse when we partake of the Lord's Supper. We don't think about the seriousness of taking the Lord's Supper improperly because we don't understand the seriousness of what it's like to be regularly judged by God through discipline. It indicates, this passage, it indicates plainly that God judges his children through this and in this way, that if we are guilty of sin or unholiness, we are likely to be punished by him now. Some in this text were sick because of their sin, Paul says. Now, this doesn't mean of necessity that God sent sickness upon them like frogs or sores in Egypt that we see in the Old Testament, but I think it means that he withheld his protection from them and allowed Satan to attack people with illnesses for their own sanctification, their own walking through suffering by being disciplined by God, by partaking in an unholy manner. In 1 Corinthians 5, a a corresponding statement is there about handing a man over to Satan in order that he may be corrected by God in that way. It's an important doctrine, this understanding of God regularly disciplines or judges his people even here on earth. Paul also says that some die because of their sin. And so for us, we need to understand within the categories of judgment that sometimes God judges people because of their refusal to repent of their sin and cling to God. This is a regular reminder for us that the gospel is for Christians every day. 
when we come to the table like the Lord's Supper, or maybe when you pray to yourself that you, when you pray out to God to forgive you of your sins, as you might forgive your debtors or he forgives your debtors, that's the regular reminder of the gospel that we go to a forgiving God, a merciful God, a gracious God that is regularly calling us in our fleshly sin to himself in repentance and in great faith. He's doing this in many ways so that we avoid the discipline that comes towards people who do not confess their sin. Judgment goes on them so that they can be brought back on. We're exhorted to examine ourselves regularly. This is why it's in the context of the Lord's Supper. It's why we take the Lord's Supper here once a month. Some would argue we could take it more. Some would argue we could take it less. Uh, this is, but we are exhorted to examine ourselves regularly. We're exhorted to judge ourselves regularly. We're exhorted to condemn our sin and repent to Christ because of the doctrine of judgment. So obviously the opposite way to live or the wrong way to live would be to ho-hum throughout life like nothing will happen because you did something religious once and judgment's all gone because you're saved from hell. You have eternal fire insurance here on earth. But sin is still sin and God is still holy, so the reminder of what judgment looks like should call us to repent of our sins on a regular basis. A fool says that he never seeks to regularly seek God's forgiveness, because a fool doesn't understand his own sin. Now, not to beat a dead horse here, but this is expounded upon in Hebrews chapter 12, where it says the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And though we may look around at evil and satanic ways are happening regularly in our world, we are not to judge because though God may be judging that evil now in other people's lives, we are still grateful that he is disciplining us and chastising us, and we are still recognizing that it is not our temporary judgment or discipline to carry out on other people. Now, last week, we talked about the ways that the scriptures do tell us to be discerning or... um, judging within the context of, you know, like local governments or within the church or even our own pursuit of holiness. But when it comes to us being disciplined by God through this category of judgment, we're not supposed to bestow that on other people because that's the Lord's work. That's why we shouldn't judge. But there's a third category of judgment, which I'm calling the rewards scenario of judgment or a rewards category of judgment. There is a judgment for God's people after death. So if you think about this in a linear standpoint, we receive judgment or discipline now through the regular route of our own life. We will receive a final judgment of, of the dividing of the sheep and the goats uh, in the new heavens and new earth. And then after that, it says that we'll receive a judgment through rewards. I probably should have arranged it linearly like that. It's brilliant the second time through. But let's think about this just from a reward standpoint. Turn to the book of Romans chapter 14. Go back one book, maybe just several pages. The book of Romans Chapter 14, the the idea of us being judged after our death in heaven is very very clearly taught to us in Scripture. Romans chapter 7, verses 10, or verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess to God. 
Or it says in, a, in another book written by the same author in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, you don't have to turn there, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And so there are verses like this all over the place where all the work that you do today will be judged by God will be administered by God, even in the new heavens. Paul also says that in fearing the Lord. Think about this in the category of having reverence for God, in fearing God, in seeking the reward from God. In fearing the Lord, we seek to persuade men of the gospel. That's addressed to Christians out of their reverent fear of God. It's Christians who will have to appear before this judgment seat of Christ, and they'll be judged according to what they've done. This this doesn't, though, determine their destiny. So there's rewards that are given to us. In the afterlife, this doesn't determine our destiny. It's not the decision place of heaven and hell. That will be decided before that. But it's a judgment that affects, affects their eternal destiny, deciding what happens in glory. Now, we're not told specifics about this. We're only told that it happens. And so here's partly why we're told not to judge. Because in doing so, we have a view of judgment uh, and who judge is. In all three areas, a final judgment, a disciplining judgment, a rewards-based judgment, the decider is God and only God. You know, a lot of us as Americans, and I say this proudly, one of the most brilliant things about America is our ability, if we are wronged against or we have done something wrong, we, we get to go to a court where officers of the court either advocate for us or aim to prosecute us, where we're placing ourselves before a judgment seat of juries, but then also we have a judge in front of us who is able to or supposed to administer the proper view of all of this. Now, in some cases, you might go to a court where there is no jury because you're not being prosecuted or whatever. I don't, I don't know all the legal understandings. But in all of us, we have in this American mind, and I don't say this negative, we see ourselves as an attorney, as a juror, as a judge. And so we're tempted to think eschatologically or biblically, I get to judge everyone else because I get to judge in court. I get to judge people at school. Maybe you've gone to a moot trial or a mock trial or something like that where you got to wear the robe and the funny little European hat and everything else, and you get to administer justice on behalf of everyone else. But that's not how it is in God's rule and reign. Only he is the judge. Only he is the king. In every scenario, it's God who is the judge, never us. And that's partly why we don't judge. We've never been asked. Judgment is never delegated to us. We don't determine someone's destiny. We don't determine someone's discipline. And we don't determine their rewards. So judging someone is practically, think about this in the context. Matthew chapter 7 comes right after Matthew chapter 6. How did Matthew chapter 6 end in exhorting people, followers of Christ, to not worry? Because why? When you worry, nothing happens. Now, when us, when we judge someone else, guess what happens? Nothing. It's as pointless as a mouse on a wheel or as pointless as you worrying. You might say, God, look at them. I judge them to hell. And he goes, that's not your job. What are you even talking about? You have more things to do, which is what the rest of the verses go on to say. You will be judged. In the measure you use by his own words, you will be judged. Now, that's the first reason of why we shouldn't judge, because we misunderstand judgment altogether. The second reason that we shouldn't judge, we see this in verses 3 through 5. So turn back to Matthew chapter 7, verses 3 through 5, where it says, Why do you seek 
Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, why do we judge? Number two on your outline, because we think we are spiritually awesome. That's why we judge, because we think we're awesome. We think we're it. The first category there, we'll just kind of, there are three little sub points on point number two, and they'll just go a verse at a time. So if you just look at verse three, we see that we have this this wrong or sinful understanding of ourselves, thinking that we're spiritual awesome by showing itself in our own self-righteousness. We judge others because we are self-righteous people. Jesus says that we see the problemed heart in someone else, and we see it by overlooking our own heart. We see them by looking past ourselves. How often do we criticize others when we have far more serious shortcomings in our own lives? The issue here is self-righteousness. We're certain that they're wrong while not focusing on what God has given us. God has given us the domain over our own heart. God has not given us the domain over someone else's heart. While not focusing on what God has given us, our own heart, to seek him with, we expose or show our self-righteousness. The text image here, the image within the text here is observing someone and ignoring yourself. Looking through a window at someone else and not recognizing that window, it's actually a mirror. And you should see yourself here. Now, to briefly explain the the speck and the log, you should know that uh, both are an equal obstruction to sight. I don't know if you've ever had a log in your eye. I have not. But I have had a tiny, tiny speck in my own eye. And nothing makes a grown man curl up in a ball more than something really microscopic in your own eye, right? So how foolish of an example is being shown here of someone with a log in their own eye. This would be like a beam like we see on this ceiling, one going across here. The, the, the picture there is that being in our eye, and we're looking out and going, look at that guy with a speck in his eye. And you're like, what is wrong with you, you self-righteous person, both of these words can be translated as a log or as a joist. And in the ancient language form, this indicates a great fault. If someone has a log in their eye, they're known as having a great fault. They both have it. The man with a great beam in his eye, he can't see, and he can't see accurately. He proposes, though, to remove the little splinter from his brother's eye. And the irony is that this is a delicate operation. To remove a speck from someone's eye, it requires clear sight that he doesn't have because he has a log in his own. And we just keep repeating this, right? Keep repeating this because it does portray an insane scenario. And that is what self-righteousness is. It's insane in you observing your own heart. He's self-righteous. And from applying this to our own lives, we need to recognize and see that we need God's grace continually in our lives. It's going to be natural for us to ignore the work that we need in hopes that other fail more than we do. And what Jesus' word is saying is recognize, recognize the grace that you regularly need in your own life. Christians never reach this plateau of holiness here on earth. We will be clothed and made glory in the new heavens and new earth, but we're not there yet. So if we're ever at a point of just looking around and going, well, at least I'm not like that guy, you're missing the point of what Jesus is saying altogether. The gospel continues to be for Christians every day to seek Christ's help and forgiveness. This is why we don't 
judge or condemn others because we need to recognize how self-righteous we are, but we also need to recognize in verse 4 how prideful we are. Not only are we looking past ourselves, but now we're seeking to pridefully help out the situation. Look at verse 4. Pride is being exposed here in this passage. The man with the beam in his eye looks at a fallen person and says, let me take the speck out of your eye first. At first, this may seem like a kind and helpful person. He just sees a need at hand, and he, and he says, you have a speck in your eye. I want to help you take it out. I'm reminded of some of the leadership activities that happen in junior high and high school at the schools that I went to. And, you know, the leadership activities are apparently we're going to, like, create the next apple by doing trust falls or something. You know, so part of the leadership activities, there's always one category where you, you, one of your friends is blindfolded and you have to lead him down a hallway without running into something, and it's always so fun. And, or maybe you're at like a campsite where the ground's uneven, and you're saying, okay, right foot, left foot, right foot, left foot. We recognize here that this is kind of what's being exposed, the leading a, a blindfolded person around. But what happens if they're both blindfolded? That was also part of the leadership teaching too. What if you're both blindfolded? I think the lesson there, I can't totally remember, must not be a very good leader. I think the lesson there is that you need each other right? And you can build one another up by using each other. But either way, what happened when blind people are leading blind people, it's just a flat mess in the woods. And so taking a speck out of someone else's eye is no joke of what's being exposed here. A splinter in a finger, those of you who are parents or maybe just a helpful friend, you've probably taken a tiny little splinter out of a finger of your kid with tweezers or whatever, and you show that it'll work itself out and you go pleasantly by. But, but to remove a speck from someone's eye I think eye doctors, I don't think we have any eye doctors here. I think eye doctors are incredible. I think the eye is the most incredible, complex thing. And I say that as someone who's been legally blind since the fourth grade, right? It is amazing. You go to an eye doctor, they put things in your eye, and all of a sudden you can see leaves outside, right? It's incredible. But when they have to operate on an eye, that is one of the most delicate things that can ever happen to someone's body. And imagine if your eye doctor walked in, to an operating room because you have something in your eye and he starts running into a table or he says, ah, sorry, I'm, I'm actually colorblind. I can't really see these things. Or, or he goes, ah, which one of these tools? Oh, I keep dropping them all over the place because I can't really see what's in my hand. You would probably go somewhere else, right? And again, the pride that's being exposed here. A man with a log in his eye is in no position to operate on a speck in someone else's eye. They both need help. They both need In the context of this passage, they both need God's grace, but not just generally, but grace that is initiated from God. They don't just need a pleasant life or blessings, but they need grace that is initiated from God. They need both of their hearts purged from its sinfulness. We know that we want to help someone else, not judging them, but we need his help on us first, and therefore we need his help with them too. And this really changes the way, as, as people who are judgmental, this changes the way that I need to pray for other people or interact with other people. If, if my disposition is to be judgmental, they'll hide behind like, well, I'm just a critical person. You know, I just see things for how they are. My inclination should instead be to pray that God would work in their heart because I know that he needs to work in my heart. My testimony is a continual need of God's grace in my life. I need that in theirs. And we go to the source, or the great healer, or the great operator. We need to seek him in God-initiated grace. We judge others because we're prideful. 
we think we're the answer to their problems. We think we're great. And in our self-righteousness, we neglect the gospel that is necessary as it needs to be worked on in our own lives. And in our pride, we neglect the source of grace. It's from God. So we both look beyond what is really needed. We need our heart worked on. But then we also don't look at the appropriate place of where hope can come from. That's from God. So we're both self-righteous and prideful. That's why we judge people. But then thirdly, with us understanding, I think from the text, that in our sin and in our fleshliness, we are natural to think that we're spiritually awesome. We are exposed as being hypocrites, we see in verse 5. Jesus calls the Pharisee, and that's who he's talking about here, he calls the Pharisee with a log in his eye a hypocrite. Why? Because the man thinks he's in a place to judge when he's got to do his own work first. Friend, your own pursuit of holiness, your own attempt at becoming more Christ-like, is quite possibly the most effective way to love someone else. You demonstrating that you need the Lord in every ounce of your life and you're going to pursue him to, to purge filth from your own heart and to gain joy from the salvation that he's given you. Your own pursuit of holiness is possibly the most effective way to draw other people into the light rather than just pointing out their darkness. Watch them, watch you pursue the Lord. You'll be more apt to talk about Christ. You'll be more apt to talk about his word in your life. You'll be more apt to talk about that you tried things again and again and again, and then you finally sought the Lord, and look how he changed your life. And in doing so, you probably won't come across like a jerk any longer. It's really the root issue here. When we look at this passage, we see a man who is overlooking his own fault, a man who is pridefully thinking that he is his, his friend's best uh, gift, but then also recognizing that there is an opportunity for true godly discipleship at place here. Discipleship toward others always begins from your heart's pursuit of the Lord. When you think about what true discipleship is, you've heard me say the different categories that I stole from a guy named Mark Dever. A disciple is someone who follows Jesus. A discipler is someone who helps someone else follow Jesus. A disciplee is someone who is discipled to follow Jesus. And so discipleship is people following Jesus together. Or the way that Mark Dever, a pastor in Washington, D.C., says, deliberately doing spiritually good with someone else so that they will be more like Christ. The only way you can point others to Christ, the only way that you can encourage someone from darkness to light, the only way that you can encourage someone to pursue holiness is by you first taking the step towards holiness altogether. If they're going to follow you as you follow the Lord, where are they following you? And what he's talking about is not neglecting people who have a speck in their eye, but first work to remove the log of your own eye so that you can help that other person take the speck out of their own eye. Jesus says to take the log out of your own eye. Why? For your own soul's sake, avoiding the judgment from your sin, but also pull the beam out, it says. Look at the text in order to see clearly not only the fault itself, but how to help the other brother get rid of it. Now, in my opinion, there is one good TV show ever, and it's The West Wing. And I cried in the last episode. But in one of the original episodes, 
uh, one of the main characters, Leo McGarry, the West Wing, is in the West Wing of the White House, and all the people are political operatives and whatever, this guy named Leo McGarry is the chief of staff of the West Wing, meaning he is really the boss of everything. And he is talking to his protege about going through a personal struggle in order to help someone else who is going through a personal struggle. Leo tells this story. He says there's a guy walking down the street, and he falls into a hole. And the walls are so steep that he can't climb out of the hole. And a doctor passes by, and the guy shouts out, hey, can you help me out? And the doctor writes a prescription and throws it down into the hole and moves on. And then a priest walks by, and the guy shouts out, father, I'm down in this hole. Can you help me out? And the priest writes a prayer, throws it down in the hole, and moves on. Then a friend walks by, hey, Joe, it's me. Can you help me out? And the friend jumps in the hole. And our guy in this scenario says, are you stupid? Now we're both down here. And, he sa- and the friend says, yeah, but I've been down here before, and I know the way out. Friend, what Jesus is bringing our attention to is it's going to be our proneness to see tiny specks in other people's eyes and to think that's our mission. Point out those specks in other people's eyes. And what he is really saying is don't judge. Get that log out of your eye and then help your brother follow the Lord. We need to see this as an opportunity to raise others' attention to God's work, not our own. The third and final reason that Jesus gives really gets to the heart of the issue here. But first, we need to recognize that we, we judge others because we think we're spiritually awesome. We judge others because we misunderstand judgment. But then third and finally here, we judge others in verse 6 because we love the fight. We love to battle with people, don't we? Is there anything better than winning an argument? No, there's not. Is there anything better than winning an argument and the other person knowing it? No. Being titled as the king of an argument is the greatest thing on a playground, in a boardroom, in a conversation, right? Sometimes we might argue with our spouse. And before they openly call us out, we leave the conversation so that we never have to answer those questions anymore. But look at verse 6. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. We judge others, frankly, because we love remaining in the arena. And Jesus says, sometimes it's a worthless cause, and you need to move on. Because if you don't move on, you're going to stay there and do something that you are not allowed to do. Now, this verse, I think, is one of the hardest in the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, to make sense of, because the, the images can mean different things, and to me, they're, they can be kind of confusing. I'll just give you my two cents on what I think is happening here. I think, I think we're being exhorted here. Jesus' followers are being exhorted to be careful, not to be careless, by spending too much of our time dealing with people who will only set out to disagree with us. Not only for our sake should we not do this, Uh, so that we don't become judgmental, but also in recognizing that some people just do not want to follow Christ and do not want to learn. And in fact, the scriptures talk about them as actually having hearts that hate Christ. They will turn on him. They did turn on him, we see in the scriptures. And by doing this, the, the text's vivid image shows that they will turn on you and trample you underfoot. Some people are dogs or pigs. Some are wolves in sheep's clothing. Jesus is telling us, not to condemn others by judging the situation and saying this is a waste. You're not even talking in good faith. Only God can change the heart in this. He's calling us to be wise and discerning with the opportunities, recognizing that sometimes 
We can either stay in the arena and fight because we just want the feeling of fighting again or again or just recognizing that this person will never hear, at least not from you, how God wants their heart to be softened and we shouldn't throw anything at them. Jesus is telling us not to condemn others by judging the situation and saying this is a waste. The meat, which may seem random if you're just reading the scriptures out of the blue, the meat here in this passage refers to the meat that would be offered in an altar sacrifice. It's something that would be recognized and seen as especially holy, meant for holy purpose, meant for holy good. Imagine a priest, though, throwing this piece of flesh that is considered holy from the altar to one of the dogs that would infest eastern cities. Or you can imagine in the passage a rich person throwing handfuls of small pearls at something detestable. Can you imagine having a lot of pearls where you just throw them around because you don't need them anymore? The image here is is having something so precious and in abundance that you would just throw it carelessly in front of pigs. And these pearls would look much like what pigs would eat there until they recognize these aren't the food that we normally eat. And the pig would become angry and start stomping the pearl out, but not just stomping the pearl out, but then recognizing who fed me this false food. And their husk would turn towards you. And they would seek to devour you. Look at, look at the word there in verse 6. It says, attack. Verse 6, lest or nevertheless, they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now, I want you to look at that word attack. The ESV, which is what I'm preaching from, translate this Greek word, reso, as attack. And that's a good image. That's what the word means. But it doesn't mean it fully in full. Rezo literally means to break or to rend or to rip, like you would take a loaf and break it in two, or you would, or uh, maybe, maybe a good illustration, in the 80s and 90s, uh, in professional wrestling, there was this hero called Hulk Hogan, who would walk into the ring and do what with a shirt? Just completely shred it. And the image here is that these beasts of the field will trample on pearls that you have thrown before them, and they will aim to rip your soul in two. It's not a joke. And as God's people, we are favored in handling the holy things of the Lord. He's entrusted us with precious truths of the word of God. And we must honor the truth that he has given us, the gospel that he has given us. And it's true that we must carry the gospel to every creature. And it's true that we must be persistent and seek to persuade. It is also true that we must not cheapen the gospel by a ministry that lacks discernment or just throwing pearls carelessly or taking holy things and spreading them before beasts of the field. Even, even Jesus, in context, refused to talk to Herod. You think about that. He refused to talk to Herod. Or Paul refused to argue with people who resisted God's word. If they're not going to take God's word serious, they're not going to see it as what it is, and like, what am I going to do to explain it to you? I'm only bringing you what God has given us. The reason for judgment, then, is not that we might condemn others, but that we might be able to love them. Jesus always dealt with individuals according to their spiritual condition. He, he discussed the new birth with Nicodemus. He spoke of the living water to the Samaritan woman. And when the religious leaders tried to trap him, he refused to answer any of their questions. Remember Ecclesiastes 3, a time to speak and a time to be silent. But we too often judge others throwing meat or pearls at beasts because we love the fight. We don't have sorrow for the lost. We love the fight. Sometimes it's more important for us, though, to say, if you're not going to listen to God's word, which will judge you, then I don't know what I keep talking for. 
I don't know what we have here to even talk about with an agreement to. Sometimes it's the right thing to admit that God hasn't chosen you to persuade this person and move on to the next person that God has placed in your life. And instead of condemning him to hell, which is what the context of the passage says, it's more important to take off your gloves and give them over to the Lord and beg him to convert that other person by softening their heart and bring along another messenger who they might listen to. I'm reminded of a now famous Christian writer, Rosea Butterfield, who was a tenured uh, very um, theologically liberal and agnostic, and I think at the time atheistic professor uh, in the Northeast. And uh, she was very much against the gospel. And she moved into a house with her either wife or girlfriend at the time. And it was a retired couple who lived next to her, who instead of fighting against her or seeking to argue against her or condemning her by uh, disregarding her altogether or saying, that person lives over there, I'm never going to talk to them. They did the opposite of what it would look like to fight for the gospel. They invited Rosea and her friend over for dinner all the time and answered questions all the time and asked them about their life all the time. Asked them about the papers that they were writing. Asked them about where they came from and what had happened. They, they weren't fighting against them, but they were loving them by showing what their life looked like in confession, what their life looked like in forgiveness, what their life looked like in pursuing holiness. And over time, it was Rosea who started asking them questions about the cross that Jesus hung on. Charles Spurgeon says that saints are not to be simpletons. They are not to be judges, but also they are not to be fools. Great king, how much wisdom thy precepts require. I need thee not only to open my mouth, but also at times to keep it shut. Now, the idea and conclusion of loving the fight, there, there are, I think, two major images in the scriptures of what the Christian life is like. There, there's the warrior, the Christian who's the fighter, and also the Christian who's the farmer, right? the, the Christian who is putting himself to the toil of the field. But this idea of loving the fight that, that I myself naturally see, and sometimes I don't even know why I'm arguing anymore, but I really like to argue, and really, because I really like to hear myself talk, and that too is sinful, right? We love the idea of fighting, and it brings on this persona, and we think we confuse it with the gospel itself. We're to be fighting people. God's love is a fight and a battle against evil. But friend, who was that for? That fight against evil was for his glory and our sonship. How was his glory and your sonship achieved? It was by his fighting, not yours. By his will and his initiation. It was the Father who sent the Son to become a perfect, holy, sinless, righteous Redeemer who would not only fight against temptation and evil all of his life, but would ultimately defeat the penalty of the sin that you and I commit on the cross and defeat the death from the grave altogether. And that effort, that fight, friend, remind yourself that it was in order to bear the weight and consequences of your sin so that you may have forgiveness rather than eternal judgment from your sins. And not only did he forgive you, but you are declared righteous by his fighting for all time, being clothed with his robes. And he has sent the Holy Spirit to seal you, to guide you, to empower you to discern where to throw a pearl and where to pick up and go, where to discern and where to spread his love so that you can walk confidently into the own ring of your own life and fight the good fight against your sin, against the evil that is coming after you. For those who God has placed amongst you, you fight for their holiness by taking the log out of your own eyes so that you can teach them or disciple them 
about the twig and theirs and for the uplifting and the exaltation of his glory, knowing that your own recognition of the log in your eye, your own ability to take that log out of your eye, was not by your own doing, but by his work. When we love the fight, we need to remember that the fight is over. It has been won, and we can trust him with the work going on. In part, the fight continues from him and other people's lives, but also in part, the fight is over. And he's given us a son who's won it completely. Let's pray together. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth that is in your word that from, well, that often reminds us of how much we need you and how regularly we need you and how often we are blind to our own sinfulness. God, we pray that as a body, we would discern and be right about seeing others' opportunity to grow in holiness. But as a church, we would also replicate the teaching that is in this word that we would seek to purge ourselves from sinfulness and to pursue you in holiness. So God, we pray that you would gift us by your spirit, reminding us of your son and giving us a desire for your glory. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.